Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Okay, welcome back. Uh, we're joined now by somebody who was actually uh, our guest on the, on the old school world, Word podcast when he was uh, climbed a, a fire escape on a building around the corner to go into the place that we laughably called a studio. And he was here to talk about his previous book, The Rules of Rock and Roll. And that was a collection of things he'd written about the music made by other people. His new book is about the music he made in and out of the go-betweens, and it particularly focuses on his relationship with his partner in crime, uh, the late Grant McLennan, hence the title. Now, very often in the game of writing books about music, you find that people who know music can't write, and people who can write don't know music. Thankfully, this chap can do both. Would you please welcome Robert Forster. Thank you very much. Thank you. To Brisbane. This is, again, the traditional question, isn't it, on word in your ear? Yes, yeah, tell us about your, you know, your growing up. We always say, we always ask people who, who are guests, can you remember the record player in your home when you were a small child? Oh, I can do that quite easily. Go on. Um, because my parents didn't own one, and so I had to bring one into the, the house. And it was a, uh, a blue, uh, like, I guess you'd call it a dance set. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, you could actually lift it up with a finger and you opened it up and one, of the, one side of it was the record player and the other side was sort of a very basic speaker. And um, so it was easy for, a, I was 12, so it was easy for a 12-year-old to, to carry. And the first records that I ever had, my father was in business with a, a man that had a, a side business servicing jukeboxes. So, oh. so I, I, was, I, I had the record player, and one day my father came home from work and just threw down about 40 singles with no covers on them, like no, no white paper, just 40 
singles that have been played, thrashed in jukeboxes around Brisbane, and they were the first records they got. And what they had no centres, presumably. Oh, they 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 had centres. Right. Um, and and the the best the best three for me. Um, there were three Creedence Clearwood Revival singles there, and um, they were the the jewels for me. But it was just a, like a random selection of what was on the hit parade in late 1969-70. Right, that's very exciting. So tell us about Brisbane as you were growing up. Telling you, I've never been to, been to Brisbane. What was it like? Um, it's um, very far away from the rest of the world. Um, <laughs> it's uh, subtropical, so it's hot. Um, it's not known, um, it wasn't known then for its sort of cultural life. Um, it's, it was a little bit like growing up in the American, a reasonably sized city in the American, American Midwest. You know, like if you can imagine that the nearest thing going on is about a thousand kilometres away. Um, but it's hot and it's the, um, administrative centre of the states. There's a lot of business goes on where, you know, like, and everywhere else there, they're, you know, wheat is being grown, you know, cattle are grazing, there's mining um, and so it's just like that. It's it's very different to Sydney and Melbourne which are like you'd call world cities, um, especially when I was growing up back in the 60s and 70s and very conservative. So it, that American sort of um, you know, like uh, Bible Belt uh, aspect to it as well. Here's a picture yeah, of two of the yeah. people who... Well, actually, this uh, the, the gentleman on the right in this picture, in fact, is Joe uh, Bielka-Peterson. Bielka-Peterson, yeah. Who was, you describe as, as the, the hillbilly dictator yeah. of Queensland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. what was... And he'd, he'd been, he had... Uh, he was in his 30th ruinous uh, year, I think, of, of he, being he, the Premier. He was a horrible uh, combination because he was... Um, like a, a, a Christian, but also um, tolerated corruption. So, um, you know, it's that weird you... combination of, of government um, where you're, you're laying down a moral line, but you're also happy to sort of take money under the table. Um, and so, you know, there, there was no... He had no interest in the arts or anything like that. It was basically business deals. And he, and he ran the state for about 30 years. So it was really weird to have a guy that warped in, like, Australian politics. Uh, Queensland was a joke because of him. And so the fact that the go-betweens came out of Brisbane um, startled people. You know, the fact that the Saints, who were the, who were the other really known, well-known band to come out of Brisbane, um, surprised people. But it's part of that thing where, you know, like when political repression can actually, you know, there's a certain amount of fervour that can come from that. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, um, it's an incentive, isn't it? It is, it yeah. is. You, you've, you've really got something to kick against. Yeah. And um, so um, that's, that's him. Uh, that's we've got David a picture of Bowie in because you talk about hearing, um, I think, watching Star, Starman. No, no, I, I heard it on the radio. On the radio, that's yeah. right. But it has an amazing effect on you. And you, you yeah, it did, it did. It was, it was the first, I heard it when I was 15, um, and I'd sort of seen photos. It took three months for the English music press to arrive in Australia. So um, I'd seen photos of David Bowie um, before I'd heard anything. And um, Starman came on the radio one day and it really did uh, change my life in, in, in a way. Um, and the, the main thing, I think, was that 
it didn't sound like a 60s record, even though I knew nothing about rock history at, in, at the age of 15, 1972, that record sounded different. His voice sounded male, female. It wasn't John Fogarty. It wasn't the John Lennon voice. It was this sort of mixture of man, woman, on the whole, you know, there's a star man waiting in the sky. It was an incredibly romantic concept for a 15-year-old. Right. You know, it's an amazing record. I'm fascinated by the idea. You've got the British music press. So you've got the enemy every week, yeah. three months late. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's why Grant and I came out over here in 1979, so we could buy it the week it came out. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It was very exciting. Yeah, yeah, it me- admittedly meant that we were three, three months, months ahead of everyone in Australia. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, we were actually, you know, like buying records, you know, the week they came out and, you know, reading the press for them at the same right. time. So what- tell us about meeting Grant. Because there's a real mutual fascination. So what, what did you see in each other? Um, we were we were uh, outsiders in a way. We, we we were the things we had in common. We were eldest eldest sons, and um, so there was great expectations on both of us. Um, we were both going to university. I was the first person to go to university in my family in three generations. So there was high expectations, um, which we then dodged, um, and. <laughs> He was basically the first person that I, I met. And you can meet these people, you know, when you're around 17, 18, 19, and you just go, kindred spirit, just know it. You know, like I've been to school with lots of people. I've played, you know, like sport with lots of people, and they've been friends, but there hasn't been that little fire. And, and so Grant was someone that um, I just recognised it in him. He recognised it in me. And basically, like, we're friends for, you know, like two years before the band started. And then he almost sort of auditions you, doesn't he? Because you say, can we form a band? And yeah. he says, well, give me a cassette. And he takes yeah, the cassette yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's see, that's very Grant. Because, you know, he, he was someone who um, lacked a certain amount of spontaneity, you know. So um, I asked him if he'd um, uh, start the band with me. He didn't play an instrument. So I'm starting a band with no musicians. Uh, you know, like, which is an unusual way to go around starting a band, you know, because normally if you do start a band, you actually look for people that play, you know, guitar and drums. But I didn't do that. And um, so I, I asked my best friend because uh, I'd tried musicians and that hadn't worked. So I thought I'd try someone, you know, like who, who was like the same films, like the same books, like the same mu- music. I'll teach you to play the bass. And so... He said, oh, you know, like, I'd like to hear the songs. And uh, I played them into a cassette player. Uh, and then he went away on holidays up to North Queensland and listened to the cassette and then wrote me a postcard. Uh, not even saying, yes, let's start the band, but it was like, boy, yeah, there is something there. And so I, did, I knew him well enough to know that that was... That was a yes. That was a yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the biggest yes I'm going to get from but you. Yeah. But you were terribly impressed with him when you first met him. Yeah, he, you yeah. can remember the records he was carrying. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He, he was someone... You know, like, there's people that play records at home and there's people that carry them around the city. Um, and, and, like, Brisbane was the type of town where, the, you know, like... Um, you know, there's not a Soho, there's not, you know, the Marquis, there's not all the famous landmarks. And so in Brisbane was the type of town where if you walked around with a Velvet Underground album or if you walked around with a Roxy Music album, um, 
you know, like that might you might go up to that person, even though you don't know them, and start a conversation. Yeah, that's the type of town it was. So, what was he carrying? Um, well, see, Grant went through a. Um, there's probably here that are people that are fans of of this artist, but he he did carry Jackson Brown albums around, um, who I was not a fan of. You don't um, have to apologise for Jackson Brown. I was, well, yeah, I know, but you know, like I know there's people that are great fans of Jackson <laughs> Brown. Um, but so, you know, like, and, you know, like, uh, you know, it was that 1975, so he had Ian Hunter's first solo album. Right. Once Bitten, Twice Shy. Right. Uh, those type of records, you know, like we, we were both fans. Record that he had that I, I really like was Raikuda was making yeah. good albums, Paradise and Lunch. Yeah. Um, so it was just before punk, you know, we're talking 1975 here. Um, and then it all changes, but that's was they were the sort of records he had at that. You time. bonded over the Ian, Ian Hunter, the kind of intro, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To to that was something we had all our lives because uh, you know at the start of it, hello, yeah. and and um, you know that junka 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 junk at the start of that's the first track, and so um, Grant and I for the rest of our lives to the people would be bewildered, you know, like we'd we'd walk into a room and occasionally just be hello, and. Um, <laughs> You know, when we were 40 and everyone would go, you know, like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, but yeah. Uh, it, w- it goes back to, you know, l- listening to Ian Hunter's first solo album. And yeah, but loads of people bond over those kind of things. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. You know, you, you absorb that stuff at a certain stage in your life and it never goes yeah. away at all. It's a secret language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned in the book, I was very taken by this, that I think you're driving with him when he says to you, what, what, she, what do you want to call yeah. the group? Yeah, go on. Um, we were we were driving across a, a bridge. We just decided to start the band, and um, it's something that's really burnt in my mind. And and we're, we're driving across um, the Brisbane River, and um, Grant said, turned to me and said, "So, what do you want to call the band?" And and I really knew, you know, just given the nature of our relationship, which was you know quite competitive, you know, you're trying to top the other person, and I knew I'd really had one shot at it, and I just said the go-betweens, and there was you know like there was this, you know like it wasn't yes, you know Grant's not the yes straight away person, and um, and he just like waited and and then he went okay that's good. And that was it. Absolutely. That's, it has to be like that, doesn't it? It does. If it you does. have a discussion, it's not going to work. No, it? no, no. Then you end up with, you know, the stranded penguins from Moscow or something. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> a, that's the committee name, you, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. no, no, the go-betweens got through on, on first go. Do you ever think when you look back, that's probably one of the key decisions in my life, in our lives? Well, it is, it is. And, and it sort of had, it, it reverberated because... Um, Almost 40 years later, and only probably 300 metres away, the first um, uh, new bridge to be built in the city centre in 40 years, um, which was um, which I opened um, in 2010. It's the go-between bridge. Yeah. It was called the go-between bridge. That's right. Yeah. If they so said that a picture of it in the late 70s. Yeah, yeah. So, so like we're we're driving across the bridge. You know, like the cosmic com, you know connotations of this do not escape me. Um, you know, driving across the bridge, naming the band, and then 40 years later, there's the there's the bridge. Right. You know, 300 metres away. 
Yeah. There's a brilliant moment where you're. Um, I think you're driving. Oh, to is Melbourne. this the edition? Yeah, oh, this wow. is the actual I edition. I have not seen with that. the Bob Dylan interview in it. Yeah. And there's a brilliant moment where, where again, like the the enemy thing, being so distanced yeah. from from information. Yeah. You've heard that Bob Dylan is interviewed in Playboy, and you can genuinely say with your hand in your heart, you did buy it for the articles. We but did. You, you we bought did. a copy of we it, and then it. you read it out loud can, to can each I, other. Can I point? Can I point out what we bought this magazine for? <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, and um, Playboy, as I was explaining before with Joe Bjorko-Peterson, the, um, the, the um, conservative Christian dictator, um, Playboy was banned in Queensland, but was available in New South Wales, which is about an hour, an hour and a half away from <laughs> Brisbane. So the first news agent that you encounter as you drive over the border has um, Playboy. And Grant and I were driving down to Sydney to check up on the pressing of our first single. And um, so we'd, we'd, we'd know we were Dylan nuts. We adored, you know, Bob. And we knew he'd done this, this amazing interview, his first interview in three years. And, um, but we couldn't get it. And so we're on our way down to, since we got over the border to New South Wales, we, um, we went in and um, Grant went into a newsagent and bought that copy and then ran out waving it. You know, which when people that buy Playboy yeah, not, yeah. don't normally do that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of under the arm and you walk quickly to wherever you're going. Yeah. But Grant, uh, I'm sitting in the car and Grant is running across the street like that. And he, and, and he gets in the car and um, for the next three hours uh, he reads me uh, the, the Dylan interview, which is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> what did you learn about Dylan from him? Was it, uh, the... uh, well, he, well, see, he, he, um, the, the, inter- the most famous bit of the interview um, is that he's asked to describe... Um, no, he's asked to name his favourite band that he's worked with, the favourite fa- group of musicians... And Dylan says um, it's the Blonde on Blonde band and it's a wild Mercury sound yeah. with whatever that conjures up. And it's a beautiful description of Blonde on Blonde. And, and I was just totally excited and I, I was going, this is amazing. You know, I, I'm hitting the steering wheel and I'm going, this is, an, you know, Dylan, Dylan as music critic has described his music better than any music journalist has. And, um, and so I'm wildly excited. And then I, I think, well, I've got to come up with something for our band. <laughs> um, and so over the next weeks, I, I, just, I came up with the striped sunlight sound, which we sort of put on our first single and which has sort of lasted as a description of the Brisbane sound in a way. But that's where it came yeah, from. Right. So I haven't seen that in a long time. And you move oh over to England. Yeah. and uh, so what p- Partly from reading the NME and getting really excited about what's going on there. Yeah, well, yeah. What was it that was happening in England that was so exciting? Eaton Rifles was number one. And Rough Trade Records you were very interested in? Yeah, yeah, we went down to Rough Trade because um, that was the only contact that we had in the um, English music scene. Grant and I had come over. We'd done two singles in Brisbane and uh, we'd flown 10,000 miles to... Uh, you know, burst open our career, but we we didn't have one phone number. You know, like we we didn't know anyone, um, but we knew Ju- a woman called Judy Crichton who who worked at the Rough Trade shop when it was in uh, Labro Grove, and so we used to hang out at uh, Rough Trade quite a lot. 
And the and the really charismatic oh. uh, moments when you meet um, Edwin Collins and yeah and yeah Alan at that Hall time at that time Scott. and so, well, well, why did he have such an effect on you what was it about Edwin Collins that was so enthralling uh, well, he he Edwin and Alan and and David McClymont the bass player from Orange Juice came down with the, with their first single Falling and Laughing and they bought and they were trying to sell copies to Rough Trade and uh, they walked in there and they saw our single on the wall. And uh, they asked the person at the counter, you know, like, oh, the go-betweens, we'd heard them on John Peel. And fortunately, it was Judy Crichton, our friend who was behind the counter. And so we end up on postcard. And Edwin was, like, Edwin was just astonishing. He was, like, the best. Orange Juice were an amazing band. They They were the first great band that we met. You know, and we'd meet more, but they were the the first. And Edwin was just in 1980 a long way ahead of the game. You know, like um, you know, like the sound of Orange Juice and their lyrical take. You know, it really is three years before the Smiths. You know, like it's mm. it's indie rock starts with you know that guy over there. You know, he he really invented it in 1980, and we saw we saw them play. We played three shows with them in early 1980, and it really was this, you know, like Grant and I were just astounded. They were a great band, and um, their first four singles on Postcard are just, you know, like I think four of the greatest records ever made. So, did you think you, you come all the way from Brisbane and yeah. you, you ended up in Glasgow? Mm. And do you think, oh, there's a scene here? There's, yeah, there's something yeah, called yeah. indie rock. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was a little bit like. London overwhelmed us. And so, you know, like, we're going to the Marquee and seeing The Cure and we're going to, you know, the Electric Ballroom and seeing The Fall and The Cramps and Gang of Four and The Raincoats. You know, like, we're, we're going to gigs all the time. So, so we become, you know, just consumers and fans. We can't play um, because, we, you know. Um, but then, like, when we went to Glasgow and we were on postcard and we stayed there for two months, suddenly it was like Brisbane again. You know, it was like a little scene. You know, Glasgow was something, that you, a town you could walk around, where London was just completely a huge music business, you know, tons of people doing stuff. We, you know, we didn't know anyone. We couldn't get in the door. So but in you, Glasgow we could. So, But eventually you kind of ran out of money and you went back. Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. Right, right. And so what do you do then? Oh, um, then, then we get Lindy Morrison in the band and... Um, and that's, advertised that's our a, first album. And you advertised for a, for a female drummer, didn't you? I mean, you well, you see, why well, the, did you specifically want? Uh, because because we we wanted the band. Um, there are a number of reasons. First of all, um, we wanted the band to have men and women. You know, like this, like all our favourite films had men and women. You know, all all, the, all our favourite books had men and women. So if we're going to start anything, whether it be an advertising agency or a theatre company or a rock band, there has to be you know both men and women. Um, and also, you know, like, we loved the Velvet Underground, which was, you know, three guys and, and two women, you know. And I think they, one of the most amazing-looking 60s bands is yeah. that first lineup of the Velvet Underground. And so, um, and so it was always that we are going to have a woman drummer, and it took us about two and a half years um, to find Lindy, and she joined the band. She was my girlfriend as well. Um, and that's our first album over there. And, and, and then the, you moved to Melbourne, which I think you described as uh, our Hamburg. Is that it, right? it was yeah. our Hamburg. We, we we met these retrobates here. It's um, the birthday party. It's the birthday party, yeah. And and we used to do gigs with them. 
we we did we probably you know did more gig, we did two uh, um, big Australian tours with them, and our first um, shows in London in 1982 were down in Hammersmith with with them, and I always thought we we were a, a good opening band for them, because we we didn't give the game away you know like we'd come on and be our nervous little three piece. And, and and we didn't let anyone let on, you know, like the hurricane was coming, you know. <laughs> and so we'd come on and, and people were actually leaning forward, you know, to hear what the go-betweens had to do. And then quarter of an hour later, Nick Cave and everyone would come on and it'd be like, ah! <laughs> um, so, you know, like, you know, we, we weren't another five-piece, you know, noise band trying to compete with that. Um, so, yeah, we, we played quite a few shows with them and... Hung out with them. Did did being, uh, as you said, you know, a long way away from the centre of things, mm. do you think that's a good thing for groups? I, I think it's at the start. I think it's good for anyone. I think, you know, like there's a reason that Bob Dylan comes from, you know, Hibbing, Minnesota, you know, um, why James Dean comes from the middle of America. You know, you, you sort of, that's your apprenticeship. And then, um, and you can make mistakes, you can fall over, you can write crap songs, and it doesn't ruin your career. Where, where you can't go down to the marquee, you know, and play ten bad songs, you know, your career's over. You know, where isolation was good, but then you start to need stimulation and, pro- and career progress, and you're not going to get career progress in the middle of nowhere. Right, right. So you come back to the UK. Yeah, in '82. Oh yeah, okay. Oh, well, this uh, is the group at the time, was it? With yeah, John um, this is '84, yeah. and this is this is in New York, um, and this is we put out our second, uh, maybe our third album, our second or third album, and we're playing in um, a, a really good club called Maxwell's that was in Hoboken. Everyone played there, um, and um, we look fairly happy. Um, it's it is it is. I'll I'll say this: Robert Vickers, our bass player. Every show, he didn't have that on. Okay, this this is this is uh, New Year's Eve, so he's there's, right. there's streamers. Right. There's How did a, it work with the two songwriters then? Because there's at one point in the book, I think you talk about the, the you and Grant both having equal numbers of songs on yeah, the records. Yeah, yeah. You insisted on that as yeah, being the case. Yeah, yeah. Was that difficult to to engineer? No, no, it made things easy. You know, because Grant was the sort of person that every album that we made, he'd have twenty five songs, and I'd have four. You know, and so um, you know, like it worked. It was worked for me. Um, but um, uh, um, no, no. Um, we we always had a, a really good relationship with that. And and deciding at the start, like this is about nine eighty two, we made this decision. We'd always have equal songs in every record, which was good because it didn't make the band become like this really heavily competitive thing. And if you were going through a bad writing phase, you always knew that you were going to get your songs on an album. And that helped you, you know, like where it would start to, you know, one of us was getting, you know, seven or eight on every album. You know, it's tension at start, you know, like it, your confidence would go down. So it, it worked out well, you know, like that we actually put so that in. So why did you write four and he, and he writes seven or eight? Because he, he was a more of a natural musician than I was. Although I taught him to play the bass, um, Grant just flew in it. He, like he was a natural musician who didn't know it. Um, and so he was just the king of melody where, where I was more of a lyric person. 
you know. And um, so that was my strong point. I could write lyrics all day, no problem. And so could he. But he was just, you know, a very typical, um, like, um, bass player in a way. You know, I compare him in a, in a vague way with McCartney. You know, it's like someone who just... You, you give them an instrument and the fingers start wa- walking. It's always melodic. You know, they can write really good, like, th- three-chord songs that you think... No one can write any more songs out of those chords. And he could do a new song, you know, get a new melody. So... He could just, he, you know, you give him a guitar and, you know, half an hour later he's got two songs where, you know, it takes me six months. So you're back in the UK. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, rough yeah. trade who didn't want to know you before. That's Jeff. That's Jeff Travis. Jeff up there. Travis, who then signed you for an album. Fact, yeah, he signed us. He, he's, we, we, we make a classic album, okay? That's a that's a 24-carat classic album. And, <laughs> and then... Um, the, the lead single off it is Catalin Kane, which Grant, Grant writes, and then um, massive amounts of airplay. And yeah, then, and then and then and the Smiths supported you, I think, at one no, point. No, 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 no. We supported them. Oh and, right. And um, and it was just um, a situation where where Rough Trade were like like Jeff has great musical taste. One, you know, one of the greatest A and R guys that's you know that ever. You know, he's you know, she's a Mary Chain, the Smiths, um, you know, um, uh, the Strokes, you know, everyone, everyone. Um, he signed them, and um, but you know, like running a label, he he wasn't great with money or organisation, and so like Rough Trade was just this wild menagerie of people running in and out, and um, great music but not great organisation, and so we we made one really good album. Um, and there was no money to make another one. You know, like Jeff was just collecting all the money that was in rough trade. And, you know, like, and groups were just sort of falling away so he could put on these guys here. Um, Smiths. Which, which, How know, did you feel about that? Well, in... Well, no, I, look, I didn't... It wasn't too bad. I just wish he he'd had £10,000 for us and just gone, make another album. You, you, you made a great album. Mate, we thought we deserved another album. Make another one and they can do what they want. But there wasn't even, you know, money for that. And so, you know, I thought it was, you know, it was clever. It was wise to put all the chips on the Smiths Square. Um, but I think that we could have um, been allowed to continue on the label at the same time because it was a great label. Well, this is when you made uh, Spring Hill Fair, and it's another classic. Throughout the book, you get these moments where the group are so kind of idealistic and, and quite precious about what you do and mm. the way you do it, and you're suddenly put in a studio, signed to, I think, to Sire Records, you're put in a studio in France, yeah. in a chateau, and the first thing they do is, is take Lindy aside and basically say she's going to be replaced by a kind of drum machine, yeah. programmed yeah. drums, you yeah. know. And uh, this is just a horrific thing for you to have to... Well, it, I think it, it was very hard for, for rock bands to make good albums in the 80s, you know, because it was very much... Um, um, everything was on time, you know, like the timekeeping um, uh, click track came in, um, which is great, you know, like if, if you're the Eurythmics or the Thompson Twins or, or Banana Rama, that's great, you know, but the thing is that approach then went over to rock bands. I mean, try and hit, how many great, f- you know, free flowing, funky, fantastic rock albums were made in the 80s? There's not many. Do you know what I mean? There's tons in the 70s. There's tons in the 60s because everyone's in the studio playing. But then rock bands in the 80s 
weren't allowed to do it. And so there we found ourselves. It's like, you know, you know, and you've got to play to that. It's not like, you know, Charlie or Ringo over there just sort of clicking the sticks and, you know, counting the boys in. That was gone. So that's one of the, the casualties of that. On our next album, Liberty Bell, we take it all back and we just go, we're just going to make the album the way we want to make it and we make a much better album than that. But that was on Sire. So when you listen to records from that era, can you yeah. tell absolutely that's been done? Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. I mean, lots of them, you know, like um, you, you could have Lloyd Cole up here, you know, and he'd be, um, you know, complaining as well that, you know, like that the Lloyd Cole and the, and the Commotions didn't make the albums, that, you know, like just a little bit more sort of funky and dirty, you know. Um, still in time, still commercial, you know, the songwriting, isn't, songwriting doesn't change, but... Um, you know, it was just tough to make good rock records, I think, in the 80s. And was it, that... sort of, it sort of changed in the early 90s, but, yeah. You know. It changed in the early 90s in what yeah. way? Well, Nirvana. Um, right. And then, um, you know, uh, Pavement and all of those other bands, it was almost like they took it back. Um, you know, like Nirvana's albums, you know, aren't to a click track. You know, like they're just sort of playing um, and, and a whole wave of that. You know, then starts. You know, but but you know the the black crows and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but in the eighties, it's it's hard. The, it was hard. It, 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 that relationship with Sire Records only lasted one album. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, right. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you, yeah. You, there's, it's very interesting in the book. There's lots of reflections on the kind of difficulty of dealing with record companies. Yeah, that you you went from being flavor of the month to. Yeah, I mean, this was this was. Um, you know, like, we're on Sire, so we signed to Sire, you know, like, that's Madonna, that's Talking Heads, that's the Ramones, and we're going, that's fantastic, you're going to be out on Warner Brothers, who have Sire, this is all incredible. We then walk into the so- into, into the Warner Brothers building, which you'd know in Soho, and we go in there on the first day, and we find out that Sire Records UK, can, you know, is made up of one woman who comes to a desk three days a week. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Any decision to do with money, like a budget for a photo, a photo session, anything, we have to call New York. And there are, of course, on you know, time differences. Yeah. So being in the Warner Brothers building really meant nothing. You know, like we, we got money. You know, Sai gave us money, but it was like there was no infrastructure. You know, which is, again, a very sort of um, typical 80s thing. Lots of money sort of slushing around. But, you know, who's making good decisions or, you know, how it's being used is not always being followed. Right. Did you find that you were kind of temperamentally unsuited to doing a lot of the things that, that the, the music yeah. business requires you to do? Yeah, I mean, we, we weren't um, pliable. Um, we, we, we were... Um, Opinionated? No, no, not too opinionated. We 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 weren't for twenty-one-year-old guys. You know, I mean, they're like Lindy is thirty-three, um, and by the sour look on my face, you can tell that I'm not the most, you know, easy person. You know, like we we just weren't. We we weren't culture club. Um, we you know we weren't. Um, I don't know, we just knew too much or, you know... Uh, the, the, that type of group would, would have... The type of people we were 
would have worked better in the 60s, you know, like um, when it was a lot more open. But, mm-hmm. but, but in the 80s, you know, to get in the pop charts, you had to do a lot of jumping through hoops and... I don't, I, don't, bit, I don't know if we were... There's a great bit where you're in an American radio station and you're asked to do radio idents and you have to go, hi, where the go-betweens? Yeah, yeah, to yeah. K-Rock, you know. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely, again, appalled by this. Yeah, no, it was just something that, that we couldn't really do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the same time, like, we, we confound everyone because then we're sort of writing... It's not like we're, you know... Um, Sonic Youth, or you know, like we're, we're not some sort of underground, you know, left of field noise band. That's where it got confusing, you know, because we're actually the music we're making is quite melodic and based on songwriting, songwriters that Grant and I totally admire, you know, like the classic songwriters. Um, so, you know, like we are a bit of a mystery to the people that are. Um, Especially to sire to the the people that are trying to, um, you know, sell our records. Did you ever think that in an earlier time you and Grant would never have been in the band? You would have gone off and been lecturers. Or... Oh yeah, I, yeah. Um, we could, yeah, yeah. I think sort of punk and post-punk um, let us in the door. It led a lot of people that weren't traditional musicians into the music scene, you know. Um, and so. Um, I don't know what we would have done. Um, you know, like Grant was very much into films, so so maybe we, we would have drifted into, gone into that. Right, right. And not music. Uh, uh, oh, this is brilliant. This is the, the book you put out, The Ten Rules of Rock and Roll. Yeah. Which we should read some of these out, actually, and, and probably discuss sure. them. The first one is never follow... These are your ten rules. And yeah. The first one is never follow an artist who describes their work as dark. Yeah. So was that based on any particular experience? No, no, just just lots of interviews with, with people that I'd read and, and they'd ask them, you know, like, what's your music like? And they'd go, dark. That's right. And and I. What kind of people are you talking about? I well, I don't know. Lots of singer songwriters and people. There's so many of them. And and I just go well. I think to myself, if your work is really dark, you don't say it because it's yeah, just inherent in the work. Yeah, it's up. It's uh, it's not for you. Dark to is a, that. is an adjective used by all kinds of odd people. You'll you'll get in anything that's a huge pop hit. If it, yeah. three months later somebody will go. It's actually really dark. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it means I'm a clever person, and I, therefore to like I know it, more about. I've understood I have to more say that it's you. dark. Yeah. yeah, and and you know immediately it's foolish, and they're just talking bullshit. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, so I as soon as. Um, like someone like Nick Cave has never ever described his work no, as dark need, no, no. because he knows it is, and yeah. he knows you know, yeah. and he knows that you're listening to the records and you've drawn that conclusion, yeah. so you don't really have to say it. So second last song on any album is Weakest? Yeah, that's where bands place it. Right, um, okay. And I speak from experience. Right, yeah. Uh, you, you can go, go and look at your record collection yeah. tonight, ladies and gentlemen, when you go. Yeah, well, it's, you know, like... Make you, a list of them. You, <laughs> yeah. you, when you're, when, especially, you know, like, um, with vinyl, um, but it happens with CDs as well, but let's say with vinyl, you always, you know, like, one, two, three have got to be three of your strongest yeah. songs. And then you've got to finish side one strongly so people turn the album over. So, you know, the first side's all good songs. Side two, you've got to start it again strongly, you know, to have, you know, people get into it. And, you you know, like, you know, over the period of time, you have written so six, you start seven... burying the rubbish. Yeah, you've started, you have written six or seven, eight great albums for this, great songs for this ten-song album. So you've got to start side two strongly. You've got to finish with 
the 10 minute masterpiece. Yes. Yeah. And so where does the one song that's just okay, yeah. you know, song eight is good, side, um, song 10 is the masterpiece, right. bang, nine. Great, great bands. bands. Great bands tend to look alike. This is, this is, this this is because, yeah, they, they, they all do. And I think part of it is because they hang out a lot together. I, th- I think you, you could get four or five quite disparate people and if you put them on tour together in a practice room and you didn't see them for six months and you walked in and you saw them again, they'd all be dressed the same. Right. So give us an example of who you're talking about. This is oh, well, I mean, um, if, you know, like great photos of the Stones. You know, like Stones. In 964, 65, they all look the same. Stone Roses, Birds. Birds, yeah. Stone Roses. The band. The band. Yeah, the Completely. band. Absolutely. The band. the band in isolation. You know, they're in Big Pink. Yeah. You know, and they're just spending time with each other. So they're not seeing anyone else. Yeah. They're, they're not seeing psychedelia or, you know, um, or the seeds or anyone like that. They, they're just in the farmhouse. Oh, there's probably one member of the group that the other ones are secretly looking at and thinking, I Garth Helson. That's who they're looking oh, at. Right. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. It's Being a rock star is a 24 hour, hour a day job. It is, It is. Uh, I think, for two reasons. It actually is a 24-hour-a-day job because you have publicists and, uh, you know, like, you've got to be doing interviews at 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, like, and, and you know, like, um, so there is work to do to be, you know, like a rock star, um, interviews, radio, rehearsal. There's a lot goes into it, you know. Um, and the other thing is I think that, um, that rock stars... Wake up, rock stars! You know, I think, like, if you if you went and and told you know, like Robert Plant, at eleven o'clock in the morning, you're on stage in an hour, that would be no problem to yeah, him. Yeah. You know, like, like um, musicians that you know then think, oh, you know, like I've got to start to sort of smart myself up and get my attitude together at around six o'clock at night because I've got a gig in an hour or two, aren't really rock stars. No, no. The, the great rock stars, Bowie, Bowie wakes up at 7 o'clock in his pyjamas or nude um, and he is, you know, like it's always, he's always on. Yeah. And so, you know, like great rock stars, it's the 24 hours. They're rock job. stars walking down the street, aren't they? That's well, the well, about breakfast, you know, eating, yeah. eating, eating cornflakes, there's just something about them that's... The band with the most tattoos has the worst songs. I think that's pretty much on yeah, We understand that completely. We just move yeah. forward beyond that yeah. one. No band does anything new on stage after the first 20 minutes. Have you noticed that? No, that's well, what, well, I, I, when you wrote that, I, 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 I noticed that immediately. Yeah. I, I noticed how much more information are we getting, even after about five or ten minutes? Because yeah. you see what they look like, they're not going to change. Because there's no plot interaction. development, isn't there? No, no, no. And the lead singer's done every move he or she <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do. The guitarist to start yeah, yeah. to the knees, the drumsticks have been... So, all, so they all have 20 minutes and they're finished, didn't they, yeah, really? They, which they is, could walk which off stage. used to happen in the 1960s. Enemy mm. poll winners yeah. concerts, 20 minutes yeah. each, perfect. I've never... Like, no one... You don't watch a band and then, like, at an hour in, they do something completely different. No, doesn't It's all straight up. The guitarist who changes guitar after every third number is showing you his guitar collection. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean I mean, we've all seen that so many times. And um, I'm always amazed because they change guitars and it sounds the same coming through the PA. And so... You know the Les, the, you know the, the 1958 Les Paul goes off, 
and, you know, and the 1972 Stratocaster comes on, and it sounds the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and then you wonder, well, what's going on here? And and basically, the lead guitarist is showing you his, his guitar collection. Yeah. He's got you know 40 guitars at home. 30 come along to the gig and they get changed. The weird thing is, you're paying for them. (laughs) And so it's a very perverse relationship because you're giving someone money to buy more guitars, to walk on stage, to change them and play back to you. To waste more of your time. (laughs) It is. Yeah. That's brilliant. Every great artist hides behind their manager. Well, that's because an artist can give good news and bad news. And an artist, artists love to give good news. Yes, I will appear at your charity show. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I will do the interview. But then as soon as it, the, the, the request is a little bit difficult, you'll have to speak to my manager. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so that's what every artist does. Okay. Yeah. Great bands don't have members making solo albums. Yeah, that's... that's uh, it's pretty much unarguable, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's... You know, everything's got to go into the band. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of examples where, where they've held to that rule and they've been great bands. And finally, and last I want one, to yeah. talk about this bit. The three-piece band is the purest form of rock and roll expression. Yeah. So are you talking about three members or three instruments? Three, three members, each right. playing an instrument. Okay. Um, because I think the thing with that is that every, every member is playing for their lives. You know, there's no covering rhythm. So there's not so someone, is, there's, there's no glue, there's no one playing the rhythm guitar or any other, like a piano on top of three other people to sort of hold it all together. And, and that's why, you know, like bands like, you know, like, again, Nirvana, you know, um, Buddy Holly. Um, the Jam. The Jam. Jimi Hendrix Experience. J- Jimmy, Cream. Great, great yeah. examples. You know, yeah. like everyone, everyone is really important there's no one covering it. And so I often find that the music of these, that these people make has a sort of rawness and a power to it um, that just comes from just the th- being a trio. There's a bit where you talk about the fact that a pattern is emerging in your, in your career, which is you're signed to these labels and then you make one album, <laughs> as we discussed yeah. before, and then you're dropped. Yeah, it's you a know, bad pattern. And this keeps going. And you're trying to work out, you and Grant, what, what's gone wrong. And it, it, yeah. it strikes you that you just don't have a front man. Yeah. Uh, up, the, up, up the front, playing no instrument at all, concentrating totally on stagecraft. You know, and you look at the Smiths, and you look at REM, you look at yeah. Echo and the Bunnymen, and uh, and you too, and groups that you know you started pretty much at the same time as them actually. Yeah, and you look did. at them and think, you know, maybe we should do, be doing something like that. Well, it made me wonder. <laughs> you know, like, and and I think that this is one thing that the go-betweens. Um, the, it was just this wasn't something that we lacked. It was the way that we were. Grant and I were two singer-songwriters, and we played guitar on stage. And for for 500 people in a club, say, that's great. It works because people are watching, and they see that you know, like the the attention and everything bounces from one person to the other. And it was really good for us because you know, like the, Grant and I are writing songs about love, about our lives, about our views, and a whole lot of things. And so it's quite a complex. A lot of information is going out, but. You know, like I think to be really successful, and people ask why we weren't more successful, is really I think the whole. If you've got one person out front and the rest of the band at the back, 
that really works. That really yeah. increases your chances. And and also for the media, you know, like it just comes in on one person. There's no blurring. It's just like it's both, a fundamentally both. different you know, artistic project, isn't it? Once you've got one person out the front who yeah. hasn't got a guitar to hide behind, yeah. they put their arms out yes. wide. Yeah. They suddenly start becoming a large personality. Exactly. And it's a different it, group, isn't it? It is, it is. And it's, it's, it, it's how it enables you to play festivals. And, you know, like it just, it just immediately makes that step for any band that wants to get beyond 200 people a lot easier. And for the, for the media, for the management, for the fans, you know, it's Stipe, it's Bono, it's Nick Cave, it's all, it's Morrissey. It's, it's also, you, you make the person out front of us, thinking about this today, you know, with R.E.M., we suddenly started thinking Michael Stipe was immensely charismatic. Yeah. Largely because he was out the front and he yeah, didn't yeah. have a guitar. Yeah, and and of course he kind of had to be. Well, if, if you're doing, I mean, if you put a guitar on on any of those people, on Morrissey or, or Stipe, you're immediately going to just, you know, like they they'd almost just vaporize away. You like know? Mick Jagger with a guitar fundamentally yeah. looks wrong, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's well, he he's did it a, once that it was a failure. It looks it? ridiculous. Remember, one tour. Yeah. yeah, but he's he's a very good guitar player and he's obviously written a lot of good songs, but he can't put it on. We don't want to see it yeah. at all. No, 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 no. no. No, the Stones, that you know, they'd be back at the marquee. This is the stage where you'd, uh, I think, Amanda Brown had joined the group. Yeah. And it interests me because, you know, uh, there aren't that many groups that had two sets of romantically linked couples. Yeah. Apart from the incredible string band, of course, and, uh, and Fleetwood Mac. But uh, and that yeah, worked how, well. How, and that worked well. well how, that's, did, how was the internal dynamic of the group? Because uh, Amanda was going out with, uh, with Grant and you were going out with Lindy. Can I just say that thank you for mentioning the incredible string band? Because when people always bring up the two couples, it's always ABBA and Fleetwood oh, Mac, yeah. Yeah. and it's never the incredible string band. <laughs> Mark's so, never heard of ABBA. So, so thank you for that. Of the string band. Thank you. Um, uh, to answer that, we, we weren't, um, and this is, uh, we weren't two couples going out at the same, not that it matters, we weren't going out together at the same time. So there weren't four people oh, right. in a romantic thing. Um, Lindy, Lindy and I had gone out and then there was about six months where, believe it or not, no one was sleeping with each other within the go-betweens. Um, and, then, and then Amanda and Grant um, started going out um, about six months later. Um, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's a bit over... over Analyzed. I, th- I think rock bands, couples in rock bands, are not as disruptive as you'd think. I, th- I think it, they learn to work work it within the band, and um, it's not bad. You know, like couples learn that they can't do normally coupley things within bands anyway. And it's sort of, I think probably it's a little bit more was made of that than there actually is. Okay. Right, blame Spinal Tap. Yeah, I would do. Yeah, exactly. As for, as for many Oh, wow. That's, yeah. This is just from, uh, I think it's... Um, streets of streets, Your Town. Streets yeah. of Your Town, and it's, it's your MTV appearance. And again, everything's in line. All the ducks are in line. You know, you, you, you're on MTV, you know, you're doing yeah. all the right kind of promotion, you know. But again, you found it difficult, didn't you, as a group? Well, you found it yeah, hard I mean, to adjust yeah. to, to the whole world of, of um, doing videos. Well, the, see, this was the one moment where we could have become rock stars um, because Streets of Your Town uh, was reissued here and, and we got A-listed on the BBC for three or four weeks um, in May 1989. 
and uh, I was walking through Soho and I'd, I'd hear Streets of Your Town come out of one shop and then I'd quickly run to the next shop and, and I'd put my ear in and hear it again and I thought, and everyone around the band thought that we actually had a hit, you know. We weren't C-listed or B-listed, we were A-listed. Um, but the record company that we're on, um, Biggest Banquet, um, you know, it wasn't Warner Brothers, it wasn't Sony, and that made the difference. Um, and again, that's a what if. You know, like if we'd have been on a bigger label with three weeks, four weeks of being played 13 times a week on BBC One, um, the whole story could have been different. Um, but uh, it didn't happen. And, and when, when the band comes... The band came to an end not long yeah. after that. 1989, the band broke right, up. Right, right. And this is early 2000s when, when Grant and I restart the band. Right. Because you restart as a duo. Yeah, yeah. We started again like we had in 1978. We just... Um, we'd been apart for 10 years and, um, and this time Grant asked me to join the band. Um, so there was a, a nice sort of historical twist to it and um, I said, yeah. And um, away we went for the last uh, six years of the band's life. Right. Is there any reason why you don't mention the kind of rehab period in the book? Because there's a bit where you talk about 1987, you said, I, I, you know, I could have gone solo then and I, would, I had a bunch of perfumed songs and my, my stint in rehab is still a few years away. Yeah. Why, why, why is that not mentioned in the book? Is it something well, you just No, because I didn't, I didn't reach rehab. I, I got married um, and calmed down. And uh, so, and I was living in, uh, my wife was and, and is German, and um, so I was living in a, a, a farmhouse oh, in, right. in the middle of Bavaria, and um, uh, hard drugs and hard life was very hard to come by. So I was just drinking lots of German beer and um, sausages, and I put on a lot of weight. And I was a lot healthier. Right. So, when 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 Grant died, yeah. there is a feeling that, you know, that that was drinking and so forth. He was he was going too far, and that yeah. you could kind of. I think you quote the the line from Towns Van Zant's funeral. That yeah, that's what Guy that's what Guy Clark said at Towns's um, um, funeral was. Um, Something like, I've been rehearsing this for 30 years or I've been expecting this for 30 years, which I didn't really think with Grant. I mean, he, he'd been, he'd had, um, he was a very, very heavy drinker um, and he was someone who was, in, in his drinking and his diet and lifestyle was self-destructive um, and he wasn't going to turn back. You know, just, you know, like we all know those type of people that just around the age of 40 don't start to swing or change their lifestyle. So, but I still thought he'd make 60, you know, um, um, but but he didn't. Um, and so, you know, like that was something that he sort of walked towards. And so this book is partly kind of paying a debt to him, is it? it that's a very good way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's telling, it's telling um, our story... And because we weren't, um, you know, playing, you know, we didn't have our first hit single at 25. You know, we, we weren't playing three nights at, 
you know, Albert Hall, you know, when we were 27. You know, we'd, we never played Madison Square Garden. We don't have any gold records or anything like that. But it's still an intriguing story with great music. And so, you know, like, I, I just wanted to tell our story. And, um, and it's not only the, the music and the band, but it's, you know, it's the two and a half years we were friends before we started the band. It was the ten years that we had when the band wasn't going and we're still friends and we wrote a film together and we did all these things in the 90s that very few people knew about. And so it's a, it's a, it's a big story to tell. And, you know, I wanted to, to do that. Well, it's an intriguing story, and as I said earlier, it's beautifully told, and um, I, I do recommend it to people. Uh, please thank our guest, Robert Forster. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for inviting me along to the show. Thank you. And Robert will be delighted to sign a copy of his book for you out there with uh, Martin from Waterstones is round the corner. Thank you very much indeed for coming. The next word in your ear is in December. It's Danny Baker. Baker. If you don't have tickets, I'm afraid you're too late. And uh, but make sure your name are on the, uh, is on the mailing list for uh, future events. Once again, thanks very much, Robert Forster. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.